From Feet in Two Worlds, this is A Better Life, a podcast exploring the impact of COVID-19 on immigrants in the U.S. I'm Zahir John Mohammed. If you live in Maine, as I do, you've probably heard the name Dr. Nirav Shah. He's the head of Maine's Center for Disease Control and is sort of like her state's Anthony Fauci. Mainers love him. Since the start of the pandemic, he's held frequent briefings about COVID. He rattles off stats, answers questions, and offers words of encouragement. But Dr. Shaw struck a different tone on June 19th. That's the holiday that marks the end of slavery in the United States. When the history of COVID-19 in America is written, and the author sits down to write the chapter on Maine, my question for everyone is what do you want her to write? The numbers I shared tell us that we're on the right path. But quite clearly, let's all acknowledge, and I will be among the first to acknowledge that much more work is ahead. Most notably, to continue addressing the stark racial and ethnic disparities that COVID-19 has shown a light on. Maine has some of the lowest rates of infection from COVID-19 in the U.S. But Maine is failing in other ways. Black residents are 20 times more likely to contract COVID-19 than white residents. That's the largest racial disparity in the nation. I'm from California, the most racially diverse state in America. My new home, Maine, is America's whitest state. Of Maine's 1.4 million residents, 3% are Latinx, Asian American, or indigenous, and just 2% are black. About half of the state's black population are immigrants from Africa, the largest proportion in the country. When my wife and I moved to Portland, Maine last year, it was jarring. Maine can be a terrifying place for someone like me who is not white. I've walked out of restaurants, parks, even concerts because I didn't feel comfortable. For most of the past year, we've debated leaving Maine. But this summer, I started to think differently about this place. Hundreds of protesters stretched across the city of Portland Sunday, marching in response to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which sparked similar demonstrations across the country. I'm sort of a half-empty glass type of person. After attending protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, I experienced a solidarity and a sense of community that I did not think was possible in Maine. It's been beautiful to witness this, and I've seen it several times since, including at recent protests in response to the ruling in the Breonna Taylor case. At one protest, a speaker, a young African immigrant, said she was battling three pandemics, anti-black sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment, and COVID-19. My parents are also African immigrants, but we're Indians from Tanzania, and we benefit from the privilege of being brown, not black. As a new Mainer, I wanted to learn more to understand what black African immigrants were going through at this time. And I also wanted to get advice about staying sane in Maine. So I reached out to Mickey Kabedi, a 31-year-old Ethiopian-American attorney with the Maine chapter of the ACLU. He serves as their policy counsel. Mickey insisted that we meet outdoors. We are on the Western Prom, which is where the creme de la creme of Portland's wealth owns property and uh, resides. The Western Promenade of Portland is one of my favorite parts here. We sat on a park bench with a gorgeous view of the river. A lawnmower was running in the distance and I could hear the sound of a train passing nearby. Behind us were mansions, some with Black Lives Matter signs in their front lawns. Maine has strict rules on wearing masks in public, 
Most people cooperate. But the other day, a white guy cursed at me for wearing a mask while I was standing in line outside a bagel shop. With so few cases of coronavirus, Mainers, most of whom are white, can sometimes be flippant or self-congratulatory about their state's response to COVID-19. But that's not how Mickey sees it. Wearing a mask is a signal of solidarity toward people of color who make up the service workers, the home care workers, migrant farm workers of Maine. They keep Maine running. And so wearing a mask is a signal of solidarity toward people of color. It's just also common sense. Because of unrest in Ethiopia in the 1980s, Mickey's family fled to the U.S. where Mickey was born. In 1989, his grandfather was involved in a failed coup attempt in Ethiopia and was assassinated. After the situation calmed down, Mickey and his family moved back to Ethiopia where Mickey spent most of his childhood. He returned to the U.S. when he was 17. It was a judicial clerkship that first brought Mickey to Portland after law school. Maine is the whitest geopolitical entity that I've ever encountered. I have been to many, many, many parties in which I was the only, not only black person, but the only person of color. Conversations with white folks often take an exoticizing turn very early. They uh, take a turn toward racial justice in the first words that we exchange. The expectation that I educate the person on uh, some race issue pervades our first few interactions, which is absolutely absurd. You know, I'm not a professor of race. I'm not a racial equity trainer, but that kind of role is thrust upon you. Uh, I encountered black folks here and there, and we exchanged sometimes nods of recognition, sometimes numbers, and uh, sometimes became friends. But there are not that many of us, and those of us who are here aren't doing too well. We are alienated, marked, and uh, our life chances are limited as a result. In reporting this episode, I interviewed several African immigrants, most of them young black men, who have been harassed by the police. One 23-year-old asylum seeker from Angola told me that he once pulled over on the side of the road to help a white family whose car was stranded. The cops came, arrested him, and accused him of stealing their car. Like a lot of African immigrants I spoke with, he did not feel safe having his name or his voice on this podcast. When I tell people, especially white people, that I live in Maine, they get excited. They tell me about summer holidays they've spent here, about picking blueberries, about lobster rolls. And all of this exists. It's wonderful. But there's another aspect of Maine's heritage that isn't mentioned very often. Of the six New England states where the Klan had its most widespread success, Maine had the most members. Maine had the most Klan members, according to the Imperial Wizard of the Klan, in the early to mid-1920s, of any New England state. The KKK was no small group here. It helped elect a governor in 1925. At its peak, around 23% of Mainers were members of the KKK. The Klan put much of their efforts in Maine into terrorizing French-Canadian Catholics. And their headquarters used to be down the street from where I live. Today, the racial inequalities in Maine are staggering. The national poverty rate for black Americans is around 27%. In Maine, it's more than 50%. I had to ask Mickey, why stay here? I uh, don't think I can ever leave Maine in a radical way because I love this place. I love the people here. I love the way it looks, the way it feels. I love its mountains and its coastline and... I do love some of its political culture. 
At the moment, Maine is experiencing a rapid demographic shift. Since 2010, the black population has risen about 35%, and African immigrants account for a large part of that growth. African immigration to Maine is not new. People from Somalia have been moving here for decades. Today, the new arrivals from Africa are often Angolan, Sudanese, or Congolese. When COVID-19 hit Maine, Mickey feared the worst. I knew it would be bad. I didn't think it would be this bad. My first thought was, in 1615, a plague that settlers from Europe brought to this land wiped out up to 90% of the inhabitants of coastal New England. That was only 405 years ago. You know, the, everything from the Spanish flu to H1N1 disproportionately savaged Native American communities. And the four federally recognized tribal nations in Maine are going to be decimated unless we do absolutely everything we can to prevent that happening. Yes, black people, descendants of enslaved Africans in Maine, African immigrants in Maine, uh, first, second, third generation African immigrants in Maine, they're going to bear the brunt of it as well. And we have to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen. But I did not think it would be this bad. A lot of African immigrants moved to Maine from other parts of the U.S. because they found jobs. Now, those jobs are making them vulnerable. People of color disproportionately make up home care workers and other frontline workers. The system has shoved people of color into substandard healthcare situations, housing situations, educational situations, and has not done for them what it has done for wave upon wave upon wave of white immigration uh, that has uh, made Maine what it is. Here's another misperception about Maine. It's doing all it can to help its black and immigrant residents during this pandemic. Mickey has looked at the budget numbers of aid packages to immigrants here, and he says it's not true. Our governor convened an economic recovery commission that released recommendations just recently about how the $1.2 billion in CARES Act funding that the state has been sitting on for some time now should be spent. And none of the recommendations were to mitigate the COVID-19 racial disparity. They recommended $7 million out of the $1.2 billion for ensuring that immigrants participate in the workforce. I didn't see anything that sought to address the historic injustices of chattel slavery and its aftershocks, which are still with us. I mean, African-Americans are dying at incredibly disproportionate rates everywhere. Just before I sat down to interview Mickey, I learned that a family of five Senegalese immigrants was burned alive in their home in Denver, Colorado, and what is now being investigated as a possible hate crime. I shared this news with Mickey, and I asked him if he had ever experienced any xenophobia himself in Maine. Xenophobia is alive almost everywhere in the world. That's what I'll start with. Ethiopia, where I grew up, deeply xenophobic place, believe it or not. Virtually all black country. Chinese people face xenophobia, fierce, vicious xenophobia in uh, Ethiopia. Maine. There's nothing in anyone that isn't in everyone. Xenophobia here as well. I mean, there are many, 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 many instances of hate crimes that I've personally heard about. For instance, a f few years ago, a black man was walking out of a 7-Eleven, I believe, and two white men rolled up in a truck, pursued him, beat him to a pulp with a pipe. Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know what it fixes, but they were arrested and they're being prosecuted. So one of the ways that African immigrants can 
thrive here is by getting involved in uh, its struggles for power and in its economic life, in its cultural life, in its social life. And I see that happening and it's a beautiful and lovely thing. One of the people that gives Mickey hope is Safiya Khalid. Louis in Maine made history yesterday electing 23-year-old Safiya Khalid to a seat on the city council. She's the youngest person and the first Somali-American to win a seat there. And she did it in spite of hate from racist online trolls from as far away as Alabama. Ever since I moved to Maine last summer, I've wanted to meet Safiya. Growing up in California, I got spoiled. In my undergraduate in the 1990s, students of color were the majority at UC Berkeley and made me comfortable speaking out and being bold. But in Maine, I've had to learn to make myself small all over again. It sucks, but then I have it easier here. I'm not black, I'm not a woman. Safiya though, she's fearless. I love this about her and I wish I had her courage. I wanted to ask her how she does it. We met in her hometown of Lewiston, a small city of about 35,000. Today, the most common non-English language spoken at Lewiston public schools is Somali. She insisted on wearing a mask and lamented the fact that the Maine government hasn't really done enough to provide masks, especially to those who can't afford them. That's how she spent most of the pandemic, raising money and passing out masks, mostly to African refugees like herself. I asked her if she wears one all the time. I try. Set an example, especially for the young kids, too. Yeah, the youth. Safia was born in Somalia and fled at a young age with her family to a refugee camp in Kenya. When Safia was seven, they moved to the U.S. They briefly lived in New Jersey and eventually settled in Lewiston because several of their fellow tribe members were already living there. Back in Somalia, I never, like, looked at my blackness as, like, different. It doesn't, like come to our mind the color of our skin back home but coming here like you're just based off of your skin color or look differently based off of your skin color yeah it's it's hard it's hard I remember one time I was at a drive-through and I was wearing you know my head a scarf I have a lot of identities and this guy like like looked at me very harsh and said f the f word to me but also like an immigrant too so there's just like identities that people attack, just your appearance, because of your appearance and the way you look like. And back home, that really never happened. Growing up in Maine was not easy. A year after 9-11, the then mayor of Lewiston sent an open letter to the Somali community telling them not to move there anymore. In 2012, a different mayor advised Somalis in Lewiston to, quote, leave their culture at the door. Well, you know, like any, any other community, Lewiston has its challenges, and we're not all perfect. So there you know, are some few people who try to intimidate immigrants or don't want immigrants or say some things, etc. Like there were several incidents of like anti-immigrant treatments, such as like there was a pig's head that was thrown into the mosque a few years back. That pig's head thrown into the mosque? That happened in Safia's mosque. I hear these stories and I think, I have the privilege of being able to pick up and leave Maine. Safia, she's tied to this place. I think there's this like connection to Lewiston that really like molded me and made me who I am. I feel like if I moved to another city, I wouldn't have been like an elected official. But being here from the beginning and knowing so many community members and creating relationships, there's this connection to Lewiston that I can't let go of. You know. 
It's Lewiston is who I am. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is A Better Life from Feet Into World. I'm Zahir Jan Mohammed. At a young age, Safiya Khalid got involved in civic affairs, in large part because she saw how much Somalis in her hometown of Lewiston, Maine, were suffering. This summer, she made news once again, this time for pushing the Lewiston City Council to pass a resolution calling for anti-bias and de-escalation training for police. For Safiya, it's the least she could do, especially given how much she was affected by the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. Um, oh my God, I cried like any other person who would have watched that. I literally just kept picturing my two brothers. <laughs> I showed it to my mom. She did the same. Actually, she really yelled at me for showing that to her. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just horrible, just absolutely horrible. According to data released by the FBI in 2017, Maine had a higher number of hate crimes per capita than the national average. Some African immigrants I met in Maine told me they don't even report all the abuses they experience. So the number could be way higher. Part of why I resonated so much with Safiya's story is because I kept thinking about my mother. My parents and I are Muslim, just like Safiya. A few years ago, my mom started wearing hijab, and she's been harassed a few times since. And that's in California, not Maine. I literally became numb to to any hate like but there are times that i'm like oh wow like you know like still hurts yeah but the majority of it i just (laughs) i'm sorry i'm i'm just so sorry that that you have to go through that you know like your journey to america was already so difficult like i'm really sorry that you had to deal with that and i continue to deal with it um it's you know i'm an outsider even on the council and People are just, you know, micromanaging everything that I, I say or do. But yeah, like, I definitely became numb to it. I'm only t- 24 and, like, running when I was running for counts. Not even just, like, right now, but, like, the amount of hate I received just running was just, it was unbelievable. Do you ever get afraid for your for your own safety? Oh, my God. My mother, I was doxxed on Facebook when I was running and... My mom was like, you're not going to live in your apartment for a few days. Even the first time I ran, my mom was like, you're not running. Because, you know, I would be knocking in very rural areas, mm-hmm. wearing my traditional, you know, Islamic clothing. And my mom would be like, you're just a tiny, small black girl in these neighborhoods. I'm terrified for your life. You're not running. And I really had to, like, sit with her and convince her, like... It's not about me, it's about the community and what, you know, the change that we really need. Did you ever think about removing your hijab, if I may ask? Never. I still continue to, like, hold on to it very tight. (laughs) I feel like it's a shield, it's a protection for me. A week before we met, her cousin passed away. Oh, is this still very hurtful? Um, But yeah, all I can say is that he died of COVID at the age of 25 last Thursday. Oh, wow. It was a week ago from today. We're still very traumatized. My mom had to call his mother, tell him that her son has died. Just very sad. And we buried him for Monday. As an elected official, Safia often hears people say that immigrants in Maine are responsible for their higher rates of infection. 
I do hear like, oh, they're not doing a good job of social distancing. They're not doing a good job of wearing masks. They're not following the rules, the guidelines, yada, yada. But the question then becomes, okay, anyone can follow a guideline, but at the end of the day, you know, your life is on the line, whether you have COVID or not. And we really like need to like step back out of our own privilege and see how these families live and why we're getting more black people and smaller people testing positive for COVID is because of the way they live and it's because of, you know, housing discrimination and because of, you know, the healthcare disparity and, and you know, the economy and all of this. A lot of them are, are frontline workers and they live in, you know, very condensed housing situations where they have, you know, large family members for just three bedrooms. So it's really hard to know, isolate and social distance in a situation like that. So if one gets, it's more likely, you know, all of them will get infected. It's just heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And we're not even like, we can do so much, you know, but like, where do you start? I asked her if COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd made her think about the U.S. in new ways. It definitely made me rethink of the American dream, which is a complete lie, I feel like, because of all like the horrible things Trump says, right, to like these disparities, but also like watching George Floyd, you know, died on the street like that. Could have been anyone. It could have been my brothers. So we really first need to come to a realization that there is a problem and then come together and really figure out how to solve that problem. And then hopefully the American dream can, I don't know, renew itself in some form or fashion. In many ways, she is one of the lucky ones. When she came to America, she did not speak English. Now she's an elected official. I definitely did find a better life in terms of, you know, living conditions and stuff like not worrying about what I'm going to eat next, all of that, right? But still, it's not perfect in that right now, like, back in Somalia, I wouldn't have to worry about the color of my skin. But in America, that does happen. So is that, you know, a better life? Because I'm afraid for every time my brothers walk out of the house, I tell them, like, don't put your hat on, like, be respectful, smile, like, walk straight, don't make trouble. Like, I have to have this conversation with my little brother, 17-year-old, every time. But if I was back home, would I have done that? America definitely provided opportunities that I wouldn't have had back in Somalia. My mom came here to imagine a life that she really never imagined for herself. But it's not like it's not perfect. And I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least there's a big problem here. And we really need to realize that. Each month, Safia earns a small stipend of a few hundred dollars for her role on the city council. But that's not what drives her. What got me through of everything is my mother. Um, she's definitely a role model and, you know, family and good community members. And I don't look at vocal, hateful folks that, you know do all this like when I was pulling in earlier there was a guy with a big truck with a Trump sign with an American flag and he started like beeping at me because apparently I was going slow and but there are just few of those you know there's few of those individuals there are a majority of a tolerant welcoming America and we need to focus on them I definitely have gotten a lot of hate, but I have definitely also have gotten a lot of love and welcome, especially from the people who matter. So for 
any little um, young person wa <laughs> listening to this, I want them to know that like there's a larger community out there that is supportive of them and who they are. Back in Portland, I asked Mickey of the ACLU the same question. If COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd have changed this view of America. It's shifted my idea about the malleability of America. I thought America was more rigidly intransigent before the George Floyd uprising and the Breonna Taylor, Taylor uprising. Now I think the United States is actually changeable, is actually capable of being improved. I thought it was too captured by big corporations, billionaires, by forces that empower themselves at the expense of the vast majority of human beings. But now, what I'm seeing in small towns throughout Maine, Rockland, for instance, Rockland is a tiny town in coastal Maine, in the mid-coast. They just circulated a petition to defund their police. There are white folks in rural towns all throughout the country organizing BLM rallies. Working class white folks, poor white folks, organizing uh, with poor black folks, poor brown folks, poor queer folks, organizing in a way that I just have not seen. And frankly, that brings tears to my eyes. I did not think that was possible. I didn't think this level of solidarity across identity, across class, across race, across gender, across everything. I didn't think that would happen. It happened. And my view of the social structure in the United States has been completely shattered. I'm feeling excitement, foreboding, joy, inspiration, exhilaration, impressment. I'm feeling a host of complicated emotions. Mickey's feeling of being conflicted I relate to that. A few days before I interviewed Mickey and Sophia, my wife told me the most incredible news. She's pregnant. It's her first child, and I couldn't be happier. I've wanted to be a dad for so long. There's so much I love about Maine, but I always thought I would raise my kid in a place where more people look like me. I'm still struggling here, but meeting Mickey and Sophia, it made me feel less alone. I will always be connected to Maine, and even if my wife and I leave Maine, it means the world to me to know that I can someday tell her kid that they were born in a state that was slowly changing. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Mickey Cabedi of the Maine ACLU and Safiya Khalid of the Lewiston City Council for speaking with us. Thanks also to my wife for her support. This episode is produced by me, Zahir Jan Mohammed. Mia Warren is our executive producer. Our audio engineer and senior producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our assistant producer is Anna Delena. Our intern is Kenny Leon. Our development coordinator is Alejandro Salazar Dyer. Our executive editor is John Rudolph. Our theme song was composed by Farid Sajjan. Thanks for listening. Call Your Elders and A Better Life are produced by Feet in Two Worlds. 
For 15 years, Feet in Two Worlds has been telling the stories of today's immigrants and advancing the careers of immigrant journalists. Our supporters include the Ford Foundation, the David and Catherine Moore Family Foundation, the Ralph E. Ogden Foundation, the J.M. Kaplan Fund, the Listening Post Collective, an anonymous donor, and listeners like you. To support our work, visit us at abetterlifepodcast.com. Feed in Two Worlds is a project of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School.